0: Good morning, church. This morning, we are going to read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You can open your Bibles there or read along on the screen behind me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered,
1: Well, good morning, church. For those of you I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is John Lentz. And along with my wife and our three children, we've been members here at CRC for a little over two years. And it is a joy and a privilege to be with you and to have the opportunity to bring God's Word to you this morning. So will you battle your heads with me in a brief prayer before we approach God's Word? Lord, this is the day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we thank you for this local body here in McKinney that has the opportunity to gather week in and week out to encourage one another as we press on and run our race well. Lord, I thank you for our time of worshiping you through song this morning, and I pray that you would prepare our hearts to do the same as we approach your word. Lord, I pray that it would be your words that are spoken this morning and not mine. I pray that you would prepare the hearts of each person here that is listening, that they would glean from your word what you would have for them this morning. And I pray that you would accomplish your great and mighty work through this weak vessel this morning. In your name I pray, Amen. A few years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to vacation in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for my mother-in-law's 60th birthday. And one of the things that we did while we were there is participate in a guided fly fishing excursion. Now no one in our family are fishermen. Uh, We just thought that given the mountains and the incredible rivers in Wyoming that we would take advantage of the opportunity to do something we don't have access to uh, when we were living on the East Coast. So the guides came and picked us up and took us to the river, and they supplied everything that we would need, both the equipment, the instruction, and the expertise, uh, of which we were sorely lacking. And one of the things that still stands out to me this day about that particular experience is when the guide was talking about the flies that are used to bait the fish, When I approached the table that our guide had set up next to the river, there is this case of about a hundred flies that at first glance all look exactly identical. And so I said, why do you have a hundred of these? Do you really lose that many in your fishing trips? I'm beginning to question whether or not we paid for the right guide. And he said, no. He said, if you look closely, each and every single one of these is slightly different. Some are a little bit bigger, some have a little bit of a different shape, some are slightly tinted or colored in different ways because the fish, this completely blew my mind, the fish are actually able to tell which fly would be present in the river at that time of day, at that season of the year, and with the water temperatures being what they are, and so on and so forth. So if you select the wrong fly and cast it into the water, the fish will see it, pay it no mind, and continue to swim. And all of these flies tend to be handcrafted. You can buy them from the store, but most people like to make them themselves. And so, as I'm observing these incredible flies that were made by hand and thinking about how meticulously they were made, and then I look at how careful and thoughtful you must be in selecting the fly to give you the best opportunity to catch the fish, I couldn't help but think that these flies will only ever serve a single purpose. They are not intended to be a delightful snack for a hungry fish that is swimming through the stream. They are not intended to be companions to other bug-like creatures that might be lonely in the river. Their sole purpose is to hide the hook. And that's really what temptation is like, isn't it? Thomas Watson, a famous Puritan writer, put it this way. He said, the tempter will always present the bait and hide the hook. He desires to show us things that promise honor, pleasure, and profit, but deliver contempt, shame, and loss. We know the goals and the objectives of the enemy, for it says in John 10 that he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but that doesn't exactly make for the greatest of sales pitches. And so he masks his desire to kill and destroy all who would follow after God by presenting us with bait that looks enticing, but promises only death and destruction. Put a different way, temptation might be defined through a biblical lens as the act of trying to pull mankind away from God and His will. And that's where we pick up our passage this morning as we see that just a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 3, this glorious scene of Jesus entering into His earthly ministry, being baptized by John, glorified by the Father, and immediately brought to the front lines. So, if you're not already there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And in verse 1, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, immediately we know that this encounter between Christ and the evil one is divinely orchestrated. It is appointed. Now, some of you may say, John, we know from James chapter 1 that God cannot tempt anyone to evil, and you are correct. We see clearly that God is not the one doing the tempting here, but that Satan is tempting Christ as a part of God's sovereign plan to test his son. For we see in Psalm chapter 11 that the Lord tempts both the righteous and the wicked. And in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, we see God's plan in tempting His people. As the nation of Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years, God says to them that He is tempting them to know what is in their heart, whether or not they would obey His commandments. And because Jesus... Quotes from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, in all of his responses to the evil one's temptations in this passage, we know that there is a strong connection to what was going on with the Israelites in Deuteronomy and what Christ is experiencing in this moment, that God's purpose in testing both Christ and all who He has called to be His children remain the same, that He is testing us to know what is in our heart and whether we will obey His commands. But God also has good purposes for the testing of His people. It is not just simply to prove whether or not we will follow after Him and obey Him, but it is to equip us with everything good in this life that we need to sojourn on to our finish line. For James 1 also says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness, when having its full effect, will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. F.T. France, in his commentary on Matthew, also puts it this way. He says, the devil is not here because he has dominion, not because he has chosen to be, not because he has authority to be, but because he has a vital role to play in the testing, which is God's purpose in this encounter. So, as we press on to verse 2, we see that after being led to the wilderness, Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights And he is hungry. This is one of the passages that gives us ample evidence that of God's full humanity. We know that he is fully divine, that he is fully God, but we see in passages like Matthew 4 2 that he is also fully man. For he hungers, he is weak, and he suffers, just as we would in that same situation. And at going 40 days and 40 nights without food, any man or woman would be on the brink of starvation and on the brink of physical death. And so that can lead us to ask the question of why does Jesus hunger? And we're not given a clear answer apart from the fact that it is God's will that He would rely on Him alone for His provision. For we know that John the Baptist was able to find food in the desert, so it's, or in the wilderness, so it is not that there is not food accessible. We know that Jesus has divine power to create anything that he desires, so he could have created a feast for himself while he waited the 40 days for the evil one, but yet he has chosen to submit to God's will and to wait on him for his provision, since he was led by the Spirit there, he trusts that the Spirit will provide what he needs in the timing that is right. And yet, as we look at this scene, we understand that this is not the scene that is befitting a king. For those that were here last week, we heard Tom preach on the supremacy of Christ. We know that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the beginning, the end, that by him, through him, and for him, all things were made. For those of us that have studied any level of royalty from throughout history, we know that royalty gets what it wants. Oh, your palace is no longer satisfactory. Let us build you a bigger and more glorious one. Oh, your kingdom is too small. Let us go out and conquer other nations and expand it. Oh, you desire pleasure, entertainment, or food. We will satisfy those and then some. And yet we see the Most High King hungry, weak, and suffering. And it is here in this passage that we see the sweetness of Jesus As he sets the tone for his earthly ministry, where he demonstrates that he has come to serve and not be served. It is never about Christ's personal comfort. It is only about the will of his Father, the love of others, and the redemption of humanity. And so our Lord hungers in the wilderness. And in that moment of perceived weakness, the evil one arrives to tempt our Lord. In Matthew 4 3, it says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, the first temptation which Satan puts before our Lord. For context, we see just a few verses earlier that Jesus has arrived at the Jordan to begin his earthly ministry. We don't know much about Jesus' early life. We obviously know the story of his birth. We know that he was left at the temple when his parents went home and he came back and was in his father's house. But besides that, we don't know much of what transpired between the time he was born and the time that he was 30. But yet we see Jesus appear on the scene, come to the Jordan. John recognizes him as the one whom he has proclaimed and heralded the way for, He baptizes Jesus, and as Jesus comes out of the water, the dove descends, the heavens open, and the voice of God says, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. There is no doubt about who Jesus is, for God has identified him and claimed him and called him by name, and yet the evil one comes with one of his oldest and most powerful devices, the device of doubt, if you are. It was a trick that he played on our very first parents, that they are in the garden walking with God in the coolness of the day, having sweet and intimate fellowship with him. And yet he comes to Adam and Eve who have just heard the instructions of God of, that they have dominion over all of the earth except for this one tree, which they are not to touch. And Satan immediately says, did God really say that? For Satan will leverage circumstance over identity and truth. He uses time, distance, and suffering to entice a trade of the truth of God for a lie. What's implied in these statements to Jesus is that he is questioning his divinity, his sonship, and his divine power and authority. You can almost hear the evil one saying, can't. You can't be the Son of God if you're hungry and unable to provide for yourself. You can't be the Son of God if He would send you to do this, which is so beneath you. And He can't be a loving Father if He would withhold good and needed things from you. If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. So, as we move to the second part of this temptation, the turning of stones to bread, at first glance, this doesn't appear to be overly sinful. For we see in Jesus' first miracle that He turns water into wine. We see later on in the Gospels that He feeds the crowds by taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying them so that everybody ate their fill and had 12 bushels remaining. But just like the bait on the hook, Satan will often make things seem inconsequential or unimportant. Thus, tempting us to say it's no big deal. But we must know, as Christ did, that everything Satan suggests, every bit of bait, is meant to pull us away from God and from his will and his purposes for our life. And so Jesus, in verse 4, responds to the temptation and says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God immediately we see that Jesus deploys the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He stands firmly on the foundation of what God's Word says. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 here, the verse just after the one I read earlier, where the Israelites were reminded that it is not by bread alone that we are sustained, but it is by the power of God sustaining us. This was demonstrated to the Israelites because as they wander in the desert for 40 years, they had become hungry. They had lost access to food. And they were complaining to God that He has not provided for them. And yet God, not being bound by any physical means, provides for them by creating manna, which was a completely new way in which to provide for His people. This had never been seen before. It wasn't like manna came down from heaven and everyone said, Sweet, I had such a craving. They were most likely sitting outside their tent, feet up on a big rock, petting their camel, going, What in the world is falling from the sky? And it was God's faithfulness in providing for his people. For in this temptation, Jesus knows that this is not a temptation of power, of whether or not he can do what the devil asks of him, but it is a temptation of priority. France, again, in his commentary on Matthew, said obedience to God's will takes priority over self-gratification. Even over the apparently essential provision of food, God will provide food when He is ready. And Christ waits in this truth and in this reality for the provision of His Father. So Satan is thwarted at his first attempt to tempt our Lord, but that does not deter him. He continues to come after Christ. In verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are, we see this again, sometimes doubt doesn't take the first time. Sometimes it needs to be repeated and whispered over and over and over again. And so Satan continues to go back to this old method, saying, If you are. Then throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan quotes Psalm 91 here, which is a promise to all those that are found in Christ, that He will protect and care for those through the shelter of the Most High. This is a rather bold move for Satan to change up his tactics and quote the word to the word. You better make sure you're absolutely right. And Jesus is quick to point out that he is not. For this is bait again with a hidden hook. For on the surface, again, this does not seem sinful. In fact, it seems biblical, right? It comes directly from the word of God. But Jesus is prepared for battle. He knows the word, he knows how it ought to be applied, and he knows the character of the one whose word it is. The evil one is tempting Jesus to take this literally, which would create a shift from Jesus coming to do the will of the Father to demanding that the Father do his will. And Satan knows this all too well as he continues to tempt our Lord. And in verse 7, Jesus responds to this temptation, and he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus does not reject this verse or this temptation from Satan because the verse that he quotes is untrue. He rejects it because it is misapplied. Jesus knows that this is a test of God's faithfulness, not of his power or his willingness to do what he has said he will do. The temptation is aimed to call out a lack of trust in God, doubting what he has promised. But Jesus knows that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that all that God says he will do, and he does not need to put it to the test. This test also reveals the nature of Christ's relationship with His heavenly Father. He knows His Father, He trusts His Father, and He honors His Father. What do these situations reveal of our relationship with our heavenly Father? Do we respond with faith as Christ did or with doubt as I know I am often prone to do? And yet, even though thwarted again, the devil will persist in his temptation of Jesus. And in verse 8, it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, even as a kid growing up, In the church, I heard this story many times through Sunday school, and it always struck me as odd whenever we got to this temptation, because I would say, why is this a temptation? Weren't these things God's already? But let's think about what stood between Jesus and these things, that He was embarking on three years of grueling ministry, marked... By self-sacrifice, for we know that the Lord has no place to rest his head. We know that he will be mocked, rejected, and scorned. He will come face to face with sin of the world, and it will grieve him, much like the death of Lazarus did, where he wept, because this was not how he created it to be. And this will lead him to die a gruesome death on the cross, bearing the weight and sins of the world something which none of us can fathom, but we see the weight upon Christ as He sweats blood in anticipation of going to the cross. Wouldn't it have been easier for Jesus to skip all of this and go straight to the good stuff? Wouldn't it have been easier for Him to bend the knee for just a moment and not have to endure all that waited in front of Him? This temptation was a temptation of allegiance. Would he do God's will, God's way? Or would he do things his own way? How often do we trade what is promised for what is accessible? I'll say that again because I believe it bears repeating. How often do we trade what is promised for what is acceptable? But praise be to God that He does not trade what is promised for what is acceptable, and that He stood firm in a way that our first parents could not. For them, they were presented with a temptation. They elected to take the apple and trade paradise for it. But Jesus would do no such thing. In verse 10, Jesus responds by saying, Begone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus has had enough. The worship of God is not something to be taken lightly. It's almost as if he says, Tempt me with turning stones into bread if you like. Ask me if I believe that God is faithful if you must. But don't ever suggest that anything or anyone is worthy of the worship that belongs to God alone. And Jesus commands Satan to depart. And in verse 11, we see that the devil has left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We see the very thing that Christ was tempted with in verse 3 and verse 6. God has provided for him in His divine way and in His divine timing. We don't know if He gave Him a feast or if He just sustained Him through other means, but He did sustain Him and angels came and attended to Him, just like He promised He would do. And so as we come to the conclusion of our time in this passage this morning, I have four points of application for us to reflect on. The first point of application that I have is that we have a real and powerful enemy. Be aware and prepared. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, What a real and mighty enemy that we have in the devil. He is not afraid to assault even the Lord Jesus himself. There is no enemy worse than an enemy who is never seen and never dies, who is near to us wherever we live and goes with us wherever we go. Let us heed Brother Ryle's warning to watch and pray daily. The second ap- point of application is don't take the bait. For God's promises are the only ones that do not come with a hidden hook. It does not mean that these promises will not cost us. For He says, take up your cross and follow Me. We know the cost of following Christ, but He does not shy away from what that cost is. He does not entice us with something that will return void and empty. For these same temptations that we see of Christ are the ones that we encounter every day. The first temptation is, that we often experience is that we will try to provide for ourselves what God has promised to provide. And the second temptation of Christ, are we tempted to trust ourselves instead of God fully? And the third temptation is where is our allegiance, to ourselves or to God? For most of us, I would venture to say, are very much on board with following God when it costs us little, but when it costs us much, we are nowhere to be found. It cost our Lord dearly, and He paid the price because He knew the reward was worth it. Let us be a people who live and act in the same manner, following the example of our Lord. My third point of application for us this morning is that God's Word is a powerful weapon against evil. Be ready to wield it in battle. Jesus was given every resource in this temptation against the evil one that we are also given. Nowhere through these 11 verses do we see Jesus wield any divine power. He simply stands firm on the Word and on the power of the Spirit who is in Him, the same resources that are provided to all who believe in Him. Ryle again puts it this way, that the Bible has made drunkards become sober, thieves become honest, violent-tempered people become meek. It has taught lovers of pleasure to be lovers of God. It has kept the devil away from our Lord. These are the great miracles which are yearly worked by the power of the Word. Let us be armed and ready for battle, understanding the power of the Word. And my fourth and final application for us this morning revolves around the tempter's first temptation of Christ, which is if you are. Dear brothers and sisters, Christ has given us an identity through His work and what He has accomplished through the cross and His resurrection. Let us be anchored in this. For Satan's device of doubt is not one that he has left long ago, but one that he uses Every day with each of us, how many of you have heard, if you are a son or daughter of God, why do you continue to sin? If you are a son or daughter of God, why aren't you a better parent? If you are a son or daughter of God, why can't you do the right thing? Or if you are a son and daughter of God, why does he cause such suffering to persist in your life? But dear friends, do not believe these lies. Because Christ has accomplished all things for us. That while we were still sinners, he gave his life for us that we might be co-heirs with him. Christ is faithful in his promises. And to that end, I can say nothing further that would encourage you in your identity in Christ beyond what he has already said about each of us in his word. In 1 John 3, 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in the work of your Son, that he came to earth and did what our first parents could not do and what we could not have done. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of great temptation and the fiery darts of the evil one, that our Lord stood firmly upon your word, that he rejected the lies of the Prince of Darkness, and he held fast to the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would do the same. We know this cannot be done on our own strength and power, and Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Spirit, equip us for every good work, and remain with us always as we persevere unto that day when we are with you forever. We thank you for your word, O oh Lord. It is in your name we pray. Amen.